What's up, everybody? It is 5 at 5. We're right around that 545 o'clock hour. Uh, We're in the fives, which I'm excited about. That's a huge win for us. Uh, We made it um, in the fives. We're doing live at 5, 5 at 5 with Dr. Rogers. And I'm going to let a few people come in here. Uh, I want to remind everybody, if you are with us, um, that we are taking live questions today. Um, the only thing you need to do is put them in the comments, uh, the comment section, and then we will get to those at the end of the show. Uh, we had so many great questions this week um, that were taken throughout the week. If you want, if you want to a- ask your question later on for next week, be, de- be sure to do that by sending us an email, info at performancemedicine.net. Uh, or you could just comment in here, and if we don't get it uh, this week, we'll get it next week. Um, so people are getting in here. Hello, hello. Uh, be sure to say hello to us, uh, and uh, we'd love to say hello back. I'm going to bring in uh, Dr. Rogers here. Let's see here. Cool. Dr. Rogers, how's it going? <laughs> Good, Ben. How you doing? I am wonderful. We've got such a cool show lined up today. Uh, I'm really excited about these questions. Um, looks like we got, hello, Amia. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, say hello to us. Say hi. If you have a question, uh, put that in the comments. Uh, we'll be combing through those uh, throughout the show. Uh, Doc, you ready to roll? I'm ready. All right. So we got our first question. I'm going to put that up here, and I'm just going to go ahead and read it for you. Uh, I love almond butter and cashew butter. I get them with no additives, uh, but cashew butter has either sunflower oil added or high oleic sunflower oil for easy stir. Are these additives bad? What's your What's your thoughts on that, Doc? Uh, yeah, again, I do love almond butter the best. Cashew butter is the next best. It's a little more starchy than um, almond butter for people that want to lose weight. But no, I don't like the additives in there. You know, those are omega-6 vegetable oil, so I don't like those. As a matter of fact, I measure those when I do a Cleveland heart panel. And linoleic acid, which I need to do a podcast on, is probably the next worst thing to sugar. So, you know, I just like to get mine at Fresh Market. And I just... um, put my container under it and and they squeeze the natural stuff into my tub without any additive. So I just never have liked those pre-canned things that had the oil at the top. You had to stir them. Personally, I just don't like those. I usually just pour it off. So I prefer almond butter. And then I also prefer it just being almonds that are crushed up. Well, and what, what, same thing with cashew butter. What's your thoughts on the best cooking oils? I've actually seen that question uh, a few times um, among our social channels. Um, best cooking oils, do you have any you like? Um, yeah, you know, um, of course I like uh, coconut oil. I like um, olive oil for cooking. Um, of course, stay away from the vegetable oils. Vegetables are the worst, so don't, and that's usually what you're getting when you eat out, but they're very harmful for your cardiovascular system. Um, Right next to sugar, they're bad. They're responsible for a lot of obesity as well. Um, But the other thing, you know, I like beef tallow, you know. Um, I think it has the 
the high smoke point. So you look at the smoke points of these these oils and cooking ingredients, and the higher the smoke point, the better because the um, it doesn't oxidize. So when something gets too hot, it oxidizes, creates a lot of bad um, juju. So you don't want a, a low smoke point, and certainly the vegetables have it. Um, olive oil has a lower smoke point than coconut oil, and avocado has better even than coconut oil. So um, avocado oil is a good good uh, one to cook in, and probably the best is really beef tallow. Beef tallow. Um, so cool. Yeah, right, you can order that. It's hard to find sometimes, but certainly avocado, then coconut, and then olive oil, and the, and the very least vegetables. You don't you don't avoid them entirely. So that's a good question. Cooking oils. I love Great that question. question. Okay, we're gonna go on to number two here. Um, all right, recommended prophylactic COVID supplements. How much of how much of which ones? What time of day to take them with or without food? So we're we're looking at you know what's the what's the the prophylaxis uh, prophylaxis uh, protocol here? Um, of course, everybody should be taking right now for prophylaxis of COVID. They should be taking a good dose of D, at least five thousand, and for anybody over forty, D with K. Um, and check your levels of vitamin D to make sure you're in the good 60 to 80 range or even up to 100 is fine. Um, very hard to get toxic on vitamin D. Uh, the next one's vitamin C. Take one gram, which is 1,000 milligrams twice a day um, as a baseline. So split that up, of course. Um, the D you need to take with food because it's a fat. Uh, Does it matter morning vitamin. or night? Um, well... Most people take it with supper. That's when I prefer you take it at supper time. Okay. Um, and vitamin C, of course, not just maybe morning, night, um, with or without food. Um, maybe better absorbed without food, to be honest with you. Um, zinc, um, 50 milligram, which you need with food because otherwise it will make you nauseated. Um, so I like zinc, of course. And then quercetin which is another um, bioflavonoid that's very, very good for prophylaxis of COVID, our treatment of COVID, and take anywhere from 500 to 1,000 milligrams of, of quercetin. And I don't think it really matters so much with or without food on that one. Or, or morning or night, um, just any so, time of the day? Yeah, right. Um, so if you take those, you're going to be fairly protected. And if you do get COVID, you'll probably have a lot milder course. And again, if you do get COVID, costs will really bump up your levels of, of those. So um, anyway, hope that answered that. All right. We're going to question number three. I'm going to go ahead and remind if you're with us, um, put your questions in the comments. I, I'm getting ready to, to, to go through those now. We're, we're happy to take live questions here. Um, okay. So question number three. Uh, this is a great question. What made you change your mind about supplements from what you thought previously? That's, that actually came in, uh, over email this week. And I, I smile because, uh, that was a, that was a question I had for you as well. Just, you know, what was it, you know, what made you change your mind? You're probably talking about the fact that 20, 25 years ago, I used to tell my, my patients that they were nuts for taking all those vitamins and I really couldn't have been more wrong. 
Um, I see those same patients today and they're the healthy 90 year olds and all. Um, so I guess the reason what made you change your mind, I became older and wiser. And now my <laughs> own supplement list is pretty wide. If you've ever seen my, <laughs> my daily intake of supplements is pretty large, but, um, so just learning, I mean, there's just no way we can get the, the, uh, nutrients from, from the food. There's just no way in the world you could do it. And um, nobody gets enough vitamin D anymore uh, from the sun, hardly anybody that I check, especially during the winter. But um, just the more you learn, the more experience that you have um, and the, the way your own body feels when you take the supplements, the fact that you just don't get sick when you take them. You can know, you, I mean, can you're talk very protected. Can you talk, I think now's a great opportunity to talk a little bit more about your, uh, your reverse food pyramid. Um, I thought that was a really cool insight, uh, where, whereas, you know, supplements are at the, the, the base of your pyramid, correct? Yeah, they are it really. And then the timing of eating maybe isn't important as actually what you eat. That's why I love intermittent fasting. Our bodies were meant to fast, you know, feast and famine. We just do a much better. Yeah, there the picture of it is. Yeah, there it is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, at the very base, you need to take the, the supplements. And the older you get, probably the more you need to take. I know I take a bunch of them. And I look at those nutrient pathways that, um, that our bodies tend to run down, like the insulin, you know, nutritional pathway, the um, AMPK pathway, the mTOR pathway, which are kind of complex things, if, you know, and I – guide my supplements to to uh, deactivate the the mTOR and the insulin pathways and um, you know activate the the better ones that we that we need um, uh, like the AMPK so I definitely take those supplements I take a lot of supplements and uh, just from experience seeing you know talking to patients seeing them and you know you're never going to get um, a double blind placebo controlled trial on supplements because there's no money in it. I mean, you know, the big drug companies have no interest in, in promoting vitamins because, um, you know, there's no money in it and, and they're off patent. They're all, you know, and so that's why I think we tend to, you know, in the mainstream medicine, we push a lot of uh, prescription drugs on people when, uh, really if they just learn to eat right and take the right supplements, then, the inflammatory markers go down, you get better all the way from arthritis to gut problems, etc. But um, it's just interesting. I, I was reading a great book uh, last night that I want to actually give a little podcast on at some point. And the name of the book was Chronic by a Yale um, epidemiologist, infectious disease doc, um, who also does a lot of primary care. And, you know, after suffering from chronic Lyme disease himself, and uh, it, it actually might not have been Lyme, but it was a Lyme variant like Bartonella or Babesia. It seems like there's a lot of these spirochetes that are, you know, not just Lyme that can give you real infection. And as you know, most autoimmune diseases uh, start with some form of infection, whether it's in your gut or or elsewhere. But he gave an interesting uh, take on him. I'm interested in really delving into this book a lot. And he does talk about uh, one thing that struck me was 
he talked about how, um, you know, when he was going to see rheumatologists and some of these other specialists, I think he saw like 30 of them who, who offered no help. They kind of will tell you that um, this is the disease you have and that this is the chronic treatment for your symptoms of that disease. It's not actually curing your disease, but it's just a treatment for the symptoms for the rest of your life. It's almost like um, just kind of placating the symptoms or, you know. Um, it, it, wouldn't that lead to, and to, not, and not to more chronic to illness? It can. I mean, you know, medicines are expensive and they, they even though they can work sometimes for periods of time, if you can diagnose the cause of the disease, like which infection do you treat when you get Lyme disease or, um, you know, or some of the gut diseases we see with like SIBO or something. So um, if you can treat that um, earlier, you can eradicate the, the infection from your body and you won't spend a lifetime with that infection still ongoing, you're just tampening down the response of it. You know, it's, um, so it's pretty interesting. I'm, I'll, I'll give a good report on that book here in a few weeks when I research it. Um, Are you, but it's a really interesting take from a very legitimate Yale doctor. So, um, Are you reading that now? What that, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm looking forward to that podcast. I think that's a, I think that's a really, really cool subject. Um, okay. Okay. Let's get to the next one, guys. And he, and he gets into COVID a lot, you know, how we're treating this COVID infection early on with antiviral medications like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and doxycycline, Zithromax. He's, he's huge on that. And, you know, um, he, he thinks the same way I do as far as treating COVID. He uses virtually the same protocol I do. So it's it's always good to to have that reinforcement that, what I've been doing for nine months in treating COVID is actually legitimized. And uh, like they've just come out with the fact that the AMA, I probably told you this last week, the AMA is now saying, hey, it's okay to use hydroxychloroquine. It does work. And it's just so interesting how it's been politicized. And now that we have a new administration in and whether that has anything to do with it or not, I don't know. And I don't care, but, now it's okay to use. Yeah, you should you should be using hydroxychloroquine early to get to treat these people COVID. And you know, this is shortly as a month ago. You know, they were firing doctors from the ER. They were firing doctors if you wrote a prescription for your patient. And, you know, it's it's just crazy the way things have gone. You know, decisions have to be made between doctor and patient, not the government, not the health board. You know, not the pharmaceutical industry, not the CDC or the uh, any of these mega institutions. It's between the doctor and the patient. So as doctors, we're, we're entrusted to take care of patients. And that's what I've been doing and what, you know, a doctor should do. You took an oath. And right now, you know, is a time when we're in a pandemic of our lifetime to step up and see if you can save lives and give people hope. Because... You know, I, I'm not waiting on this vaccine. I want to treat this stuff early. I'm not against the vaccines at all. We'll talk about them extensively in the next few podcasts, you know, the differences in all of them and stuff. But, um, 
you know, it seems like every time I get on a little rant about the system, but um, uh, folks, the treatment, the treatment that patients receive is between patient and doctor. You know, there shouldn't be any interference between, you know, them setting guidelines as to what you can and cannot use, um, especially in, in drugs like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin that have been used for decades and are dirt cheap and very, very safe. I mean, it's ridiculous what went on with that months ago, and now we're being kind of proven right that these things do work. So anyway. Um, Can I ask? So is that, you know, it seems to me that, you know, just those last, you know, two minutes there are a huge reason why you started performance medicine, you know, 15, 16 years ago was, was out of that need to preserve the, the doctor patient relationship and, and makes, make a, create a situation where, where that could happen. Is that, is that kind of accurate in, in terms of like, you know, yeah, the PM yeah, I origin story? I wanted to be independent and be able to treat my own patients without interference from insurance companies. When I practiced, you know, the way I used to do, I'd be on a computer trying to talk to a patient, trying to search for a code to find something so you get paid a diagnosis. And then I'd be on the phone with some somebody who wasn't even a medical person, seeing if is it okay if I got a an X-ray on this person's head, you know. So when I I just got tired of all that. So I, I wanted to eliminate all the things that I didn't like about medicine. So the first thing to go was my EMR. I did not want to be on a computer trying to talk to a patient. The second thing that went was um, management. You know, I didn't want some non-medical manager telling me how many CAT scans I needed to do in a month. The third thing I, I wanted to do is cut out all the insurance companies because I didn't want to search for a code, try to get paid from them. You know, the, it just was a perfect storm for doing this because nowadays, look at your look at what insurance covers and what it doesn't. I mean, you can pay cash for a, a medicine and get it cheaper than you can get it for for your insurance in a lot of cases, you know, and it's certainly or probably cheaper to see me than it is um, to see a, a doctor that does insurance because they, they have to jack the rates up to get 30 cents on the dollar. So it's just a lot about control. I wanted just to have patient-doctor interaction, do what's best for that patient, to heck with the insurance companies, the administrators, the codes that you have to find, you know, to search for an illness. It's just crazy, you know, and you had to see so many patients that you became kind of sidetracked. And a lot of times the patient became secondary, you know, it's just the way it was. And so, yeah, I like the way I practice medicine now. We've been doing this for what, 16 years. And, you know, it's just, it's just been a great thing for me. It was just the perfect time to do it. And I wish all doctors could do it, to be honest with you. I think we'd have a much better medical system. Put the, put the, the control back in the doctors and the patients' hands, you know, not bureaucracies who have become so controlling that they're trying to tell us how we can treat a patient and how we can't use a, a very safe, very effective medicine to treat something like COVID. I mean, it's just been, it's absolutely insane, but hopefully we're getting to where we can do it. I've been doing it anyway. Heck, you know, if they want to take my license away, go, go at it, you know, have a good time with it. <laughs> I'll just retire, which I'm not going to do. I could if I wanted to, but I enjoy treatment. 
patients and I enjoy helping people with a one-on-one situation. So, um, well, anyway, I, I think that's well said. And we're going to go to the next question because this is a really interesting one. Um, I will only put up some of it. I'm going to go ahead and read, uh, the full question here. Um, I began telogen effluvium about seven months ago, uh, for COVID related reasons. I've lost two thirds of my hair at this point. So I went to a dermatologist where I was formally diagnosed with massive effluvium, had a scalp biopsy, uh, scalp biopsy prescribed a topical, uh, steroid cream, cream to, to calm my scalp and instructed to stop all supplements for six months. What are your thoughts on ceasing supplements? I was told biotin was not scientifically proven to help with hair, skin, nails. I'm at this point, uh, at the point of needing a wig or wear a beanie for the foreseeable future. Uh, what is your thoughts on, on TE, on telogen effluvium? Yeah, which is massive hair loss, probably precipitated by the COVID that they had. I mean, any viral or autoimmune process can cause hair loss. It's usually down the line from when you had it because hair grows in cycles. Um, but, um, you know, it's, I'm assuming this is a woman talking. It seems like women get a lot more of that than men do as far as some of the autoimmune hair losses that I've seen. Um, but it's a tough problem. One thing, if it is a woman, I will say your hair will most likely come back once the um, that autoimmune storm is is kind of subsided a little bit and you probably may need a little help like some steroids sometimes they do steroid injections sometimes i do prp injections in the scalp it seems to help i did two yesterday um but uh the fact that you know i like biotin for hair hair and nails i mean i know it's probably never been scientifically proven just like I said about any vitamin, it's not going to be scientifically proven because, they, you know, big companies can't do that. There's no, not enough money to do a double blind, you know, multi-billion dollar trial for biotin. So, you know, I don't necessarily agree that, that I would stop all my vitamins because of that for six months. I certainly wouldn't stop my DC or zinc right now for sure. Um, during this COVID thing. I mean, you need protection, even if you've had a disease. Um, it strengthens your immune system, quercetin also. But so I probably wouldn't do that. I mean, you, if you've already always taken these vitamins, these vitamins didn't cause that hair loss. So I, my personal thing, I wouldn't get off my vitamins. You know, I wouldn't wait for a study uh, on your vitamin efficacy because there'll never be one. Uh, but we know they work. I mean, you wouldn't take a Tylenol or aspirin if you're waiting for a study to prove they work. Uh, they work. So um, that's my thought on that. I hope that, um, you know, the hair comes back. I think it probably will um, once it kind of settles. But you, you need to think about what's going on with your GI system. And, um, you know, certainly steroids can sometimes jump start it a little bit. Um and, and to be honest with you, for these long hauler COVID patients, you know, which I've seen hundreds of COVID patients and, you know, it really does affect your immune system. And I, I think these people not only need higher dose of vitamins, they, they may need some of these antiviral agents uh, for, a long, for long periods of time, like, um, you know, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. I'm even starting to use a lot of colchicine uh, for long hauler syndrome with COVID. 
Colchicine is a gout medicine that's been very effective uh, for improving symptoms of long haulers. Um, if you look at that uh, Eastern Virginia Medical School math protocol, uh, colchicine is one of the medicines that we do use. It's a lot. It's one of these repurposed drugs. It's inexpensive, cheap, and it does work. Very good anti-inflammatory. So it may help in some of these symptoms as well. It's, it's worth trying. So think about some of those things you can do, and you know maybe I can help you with it too. Put my two cents worth in, as well as uh, the derm people and all. So great, great question. I've seen a lot of hair loss with COVID. Interesting. I've seen a lot of muscle aches and weird, weird inflammatory symptoms like arthritis and, and some things. I had you, you one just, today. Go ahead. I had one today that had after COVID, they had a, after COVID, they got developed symptoms of arthritis and had a positive lupus test and a positive rheumatoid arthritis test. So um, I think it kicked it off. Whether, there, whether that predisposition was there or not, it probably was, but then how you deal with it. And also, is it a false positive because of recent COVID? I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how we do with that patient um, in conjunction with the rheumatologic workup. So we'll put our heads together That's you know, really and try to help actually. the patient. So, all right, we're going to um, go to the next one here, Doc. Um, all right, interested in your feelings on the keto diet. Net carbs versus total carbs, the pluses, the minuses, the long-term viability, which I know is a, a, a big concern for lots of people. Um, what's your thoughts on this? I know you're big on, on high-fat high diets and low carbs. Yeah, and moderate protein. Yeah, I like keto. Of course, you know, your body does better burning ketones than it does sugar, glucose. But the problem with it, it's very hard to stay on a keto diet. I had another great discussion with a patient today. She couldn't do it. Um, and she was, it wasn't working for her too well, even though I checked her blood ketone level and she was like at 3.9 millimoles of ketosis, which is very deep into ketosis. Yet she wasn't losing the weight she wanted to probably because she was, she was eating too much protein, I think. But, um, so I like the keto, but I think a much more doable thing is to do what I do and what I recommend a lot of my patients do. And that is, uh, to go with more of an intermittent fasting diet where you are, you kick yourself into ketosis for part of the day and then you can get out of it. It's just very hard for people to stay in ketosis. Plus, you know, you get that ketone breath, which is not pleasant. Um, so I like the intermittent fasting. Certainly I like a high fat, uh, low carb, moderate protein diet. And as far as uh, net carbs versus total carbs, I mean, academically net carbs are probably fine just to do that but it seems like it's easier to count total carbs and just use a little higher total carb than a lower net carb uh, value. You know, net, net carbs are just total minus the fiber in there. Sometimes it's just kind of hard to figure out how much fiber is in there. So I usually go by total carbs, but if you're really diligent and can do it, net carbs are probably, you know, a fine way to do it. So for, for total carbs, do you, is it around 40? For ketosis, no, it's more like 20. Is it 20? Okay. Uh, but in general, if you're just trying to lose weight, I usually tell people to try to do intermittent fasting and try to, uh, in general, keep your carbs under 50. Um, and if you work out a ton, you can bump your carbs up. And again, the type of carbs you're eating matter. A carb is not a carb. 
you know, they have different glycemic indexes. So we look at all that. Great question there. I'm going to go to the, we have one more here. I just want to go to the comments and, and remind everybody uh, that we are taking live questions. So if you're still with us, um, ask a question if you got one. Uh, we'd love to, to answer, answer some live here. Uh, I see you, Elena. I see you, uh, Deb. Hello, Jessica. Um, Gwen. Mike. Uh, it's great to see Mike in here. Um, all right, we got one more question here. Hello, Claudia. Uh, Shana. Um, one more question. Let's hide that. And this is, you know, one that, that I think a, a lot of people are, are probably thinking. Um, this probably is a question of everyone in here. Uh, can Dr. Rogers explain how each of the three vaccines react within the body and if he has an opinion on which one is better? That's a, <laughs> that's a tough question. I, I kind of wish that was asked in a week or two because I do, I'm going to have a special podcast on the COVID vaccines because, you know, everybody's thinking that should I get a vaccine? Should I not get a vaccine? I'm certainly not an anti-vaxxer. I will tell people that if you're at risk for COVID, go ahead and get the vaccine, you know, unless you have a lot of um, allergy problems. If you've had anaphylaxis or haven't done well with certain vaccines, you might uh, wait until the new one comes out. But um, certainly, you know, in a lot of cases, especially if you're at risk, extremely obese, um, diabetic, cardiopulmonary disease, elderly, you know, getting any vaccine is better than getting the disease. Now, you know, the, the first two vaccines that are available that have come out, you know, the AstraZeneca and the Moderna, um, they're or Pfizer. Um, they're based on a little different newer technology. It's called mRNA, which is messenger RNA. You know, RNA is, is like the building blocks or messenger to make DNA, which is that double-stranded helix thing that you see that um, is in every chromosome. I mean, it's actually tells your body what to do. Um, so the, the ones that are out now, um, do have a few drawbacks for sure. And I've seen some pretty unpleasant reactions and side effects from them already, um, especially on that second shot. It's a two shot deal. The first one, usually people do okay. Um, the second one, you, you can get pretty sick with it. Um, and I'm not convinced that a few of my patients didn't really get COVID from that second vaccine. They did develop COVID uh, two or three days later. Now, whether or not they developed it in the week prior because of exposure. Who knows? But um, certainly they got pretty darn sick and full-blown COVID after that second shot. Again, that's kind of rare. Most people just get fever, achy, and they feel like they have a flu for a day or two or three. So if you get that second shot of the new ones, plan on not going to work the next day. Um, just try to time it, I guess. Um, so, you know, the, they're, they kind of, it took a lot of diligent research and all, and although they've been working on mRNA vaccines for a while, they really crunched it up and, and, um, kind of pushed it through. Um, we would like to have more long-term studies on it, but Hey, we're in a crisis. We don't have time for that. So, I'm all for the vaccine and developing this herd immunity through the natural infection of the vaccine, either one. But um, it's a little different technology, um, requires 
two shots. It, um, you know, has to be stored at very cold temperatures. There's a little more chance for error. And for some reason, they're not getting enough of these vaccines out. It's just been really slow in getting them. Um, so, you know, the first two mRNA vaccines, if you're at risk, um, take them. If I'd had the, the disease in itself, I would not rush out to get one of these things. I'd actually let my natural immunity uh, do that along with taking your vitamins. Hold off for a few months before you get that vaccine if you've had COVID anywhere within the last three months, for sure. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'm really interested to see, and I'm more interested in the vaccine that's going to come out probably, it'll probably be, be approved this week, the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine that's going to come out and probably be available within the next month. It just, to me, sounds like it may be a little bit better. In the trials, it didn't show quite the efficacy of the first two, um, but you can't compare them. It's like comparing apples to oranges because at the time of the first two mRNA vaccines, they didn't have all these mutations that we're having. That's another thing about these vaccines, man. There's going to be all kinds of mutate, mutations. That's what viruses do. They mutate. They change. Look at the flu virus, the flu vaccine, and the flu virus. It's almost a guess. But... Um, so when the Johnson & Johnson trials were finished, they included these mutations. So that's why it looked like the, the efficacy of 72% in the United States wasn't as good as the 94, 95% of the first two vaccines. But you were, it's a different time. And also, um, there's a, the, the definition of who had the vaccine, who didn't get COVID changed to, I think, the little more stringent trials with the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine. Also, it's a one-time shot, which I like. It's, it's based on, um, you know, more of an older studied vaccination theory. It's not killed virus either, but it... Um, it uses uh, an adenovirus to carry in the, the vaccine that's, that will then encode for that spike protein. It gets kind of complex. And hopefully when I do my podcast, I'll have a lot more information on that for those that want to dive deep into this. You know, basically with a vaccine, you've got to kind of trust a little bit. And um, so I'm looking forward to seeing how the Johnson & Johnson vaccine does what kind of side effects we're getting with it after a lot of people have gotten it. Um, you know, we've already seen quite a few side effects and a few deaths from the first two. But again, I'm not saying not to take it. Um, I'm saying uh, if you're really at high risk, go ahead and take the vaccine and, um, you know, hope for the best on that. But I can't wait till this J&J gets out. I think it's going to be more available you just refrigerate it. It's a one-shot deal, um, and it's going to be, I think, very efficacious for COVID. I really am very optimistic that, you know, by summer we're going to be out of this crisis and that life can go on. Um, but we're going to be dealing with coronavirus, you know, for forever probably. Yeah. I mean, it's always been around. A cold virus is a coronavirus, but this particular crazy, you know, COVID, SARS, it's just been a crazy thing. It's its not typical. There's nothing ever been seen like that virus in nature, which makes you think, is this thing manufactured or did it leak? Which, you know, 
you can have your controversies about. Um, but um, the deal is we gotta we gotta treat it, and it is a treatable virus. You'd rather prevent it than treat it, but it is treatable if you treat it early. Well, what about for the way. for the long haulers who I'm assuming are probably more susceptible um, than than others uh, to COVID? If I'm a long hauler, do you suggest I get the vaccine? Is that going to protect me at all, or do I just ride it out? Well, you don't know if you're a long hauler. It means somebody that has had COVID. So, it does, but I'm still suffering not, from symptoms. Yeah, but you still have symptoms. So that's a long hauler. That's what I mean by that. So you don't know if you're going to be a long hauler until you get the actual disease. Now, uh, people, you're right. People that are more susceptible to cardiopulmonary disease are more likely to be long haulers. So, and you have to treat them for their heart failure, their pulmonary problems. I mean, some of them have to wear oxygen all the time. Um, there's a couple of long haulers I've had to treat with long-term oxygen, even, you know, at a, you know, 50 years old, but, um, usually they had a pre-existing. So yeah, I'm saying that they may, may need months worth of hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, colchicine. They may need that. Um, so, um, it's certainly safe. So you'd certainly do that. You'd pursue that. Um, uh, great, great question. These yeah. are good. This has turned out to be, we've covered a lot of stuff in this in this five at five, I can tell you that much. So, well, you know, stay tuned. I, I'm loving this five at five because it makes me think a lot, you know, on my feet, because these are not questions I look at beforehand. And well, for some of the things like the vaccine, I certainly hope to have a lot better, more detailed information shortly. But I'm waiting really to that J&J &J vaccine gets approved until we watch and see what happens a, a little bit. But I'm certainly not discouraging anybody from getting the vac the two vaccines that are out there now. I'm all for it. You know, it's probably better than getting the disease for most people. Yeah. Well, um, well, Doc, if it's okay, we're going to go to some of the live questions. We got some uh, some great questions in the comments here. Uh, if you have a question, be sure to ask. And and for one, I'm just super thankful that you guys are hanging out with us on this Tuesday evening. Uh, these fives at five at five has been so much fun. Um, Dr. Rogers and I kind of, we, we kind of geek out on this stuff and, and, uh, we're always looking forward to, to Tuesday and, and, uh, and I gather all the questions from the week before, uh, today. So I'm kind of, um, I'm engulfed in the five at five, uh, life, uh, all day today. So I'm, I'm excited. Uh, and I really appreciate you guys being here. It means a lot to us. Um, okay. So let's see here. I'm going to get to. To one, I'm going to put this up for from Gwen. Uh, I was told that children do not catch COVID from other children, but instead catch it from adults in the schools. I find this hard to believe. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I'm like you. I find that very hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just don't believe that a bit. I'm with you on that one. Uh, that's ridiculous. You know, this thing's it's very contagious. You know, kids don't get too sick with it. You know, like adults can, but. Um, you know, so I, I think you're right there with for school teachers who had a tough time. I'm telling you, they're they're heroes. The, the frontline workers and the people in the hospitals and EMS are heroes that, you know, those frontline workers are risking a lot being there. They're overworked. And but teachers also, you know, teachers are, are they're more at risk for getting sick than the kids are. So, you know, I mean, heck. 
you know, teachers catch a lot of stuff from these kids, <laughs> it seems like. But uh, so it's it's contagious, you know, anyway. So. Yeah. Um, and one thing about that, uh, we, we had a great podcast on I, I on up here uh, this week, and, and I'm hopeful that that's going to help uh, with the schools um, in killing the pathogens, uh, the pathogens uh, in the air. Um, okay, so I'm going to go to Amia here because this is a great question. Uh, Amia asks, I have my second vaccine today. I've heard to increase vitamin D. Is there any truth to this? Um, yeah, I would. I would increase your vitamin D. I hope tomorrow you're not planning on a whole lot of things. <laughs> I'm trying to kid you, but um, you may have a rough day tomorrow. Some people do. But don't worry, you'll be fine. Um, but uh, you, you could increase. I always, if if... If you start to ache or with this or run fever, um, don't hesitate to take ibuprofen if you need it or Tylenol or both. They sometimes work synergistically. I love the combination of uh, for arthritis or acute severe inflammation using a combination of, of a non-steroidal with Tylenol, you know, if you have to take something for it. Um, if you're curcumin and stuff like that aren't working but yeah you could pop your d up a little bit you know to kind of maybe prevent some of those uh post vaccine aches that you can get um i love vitamin d i just i'm a huge fan of vitamin d but yeah you can do that all right I, we you're still gonna get cool okay this is from from mike here uh, what's up mike uh what is a good anti-inflammatory supplement Oh, that's a good question. I just talked about it. Turmeric, which is curcumin in pill form, is a great anti-inflammatory supplement. Um, another great one is quercetin. You know, uh, we use that for inflammation in orthopedics, just like we do Motrin or something. So those are uh, natural supplements that you can use for. Um, and vitamin D is a good one, too, though, like we just talked about. C is a good one. Um, zinc is a good one, uh, but um, and I'm certainly not against a, a daily baby aspirin, you know, as a which comes from willow bark. If you don't take willow bark, do that. Uh, if you if you don't take an aspirin, that's where it comes from. All right, we got good another, question. That is a good question. All right, Claudia asks, what do you typically eat for for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I don't eat any breakfast at all. No breakfast. That's the best breakfast is no breakfast. The old adage that breakfast is the most important meal of the day is just total hogwash. Um, it really kind of sets you up for being hungry all day. If you'll do the intermittent fasting, um, you'll find yourself less hungry, leaner, and with more energy. So no breakfast, black coffee or water. Um, lunch, I like, I like, um, turkey. I, I like fish. Um, I like, you know, I try to avoid a lot of carbs. Um, I'm typically on a low carb. You can't raise two diabetics and not kids and not be sensitive about carbs. So, um, I eat a few nuts and I'll eat, uh, meat. I, I like cheese. Instead of using bread, I just kind of roll the meat up in the cheese. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I eat. A, a salad. I love a salad. Um, I'll eat chicken, uh, you know, this uh, free range and all. 
Um, I try to eat as organic as I can. Sometimes vegetables, carrots. Sometimes I'll have some bit of apple slices. Um, I don't try not to eat a lot of dried fruits. They're too sugary. Um, but in uh, supper, I usually try to eat um, uh, before seven. Nothing after seven. No no nighttime snacks anymore. I try to get a good meat, some grass fed beef, fish. I love salmon. I can eat salmon all day. I like shellfish. They're good for you. Um, again, I'll eat vegetables. Uh, I love broccoli. That's my favorite one. Put cheese over it. Um, can I ask? What, what, and sometimes, go ahead. Once or twice a week, I eat a sweet potato, which you know I really like, um, with a lot of good Kerrygold butter on it. It's that good butter. Um, uh, but anyway, I'm trying to think. I drink a lot of water. I don't eat dessert anymore too much. Sometimes I will eat a piece of dark chocolate, you know, which has high fat, low sugar. This gives you a good feeling. Um, but that's generally it. Okay. All right, I'm going to go. We got one from uh, Leslie here, which I, it kind of piggybacks on one of the, the vaccine questions. But I think, um, I think this is an important one, you know, for, you know, what to expect after the second one you've obviously mentioned, you know, kind of expect maybe to uh, not feel that great. Um, can you just offer some affirmation on, on what to do if you, if you do start to feel, you know, not great uh, as far as what to do? Yeah. Um, yeah. You had your first vaccine. Most people that I've talked to um, did fine with the first shot, just maybe a little bit of sore arm, but um, the second shot's really the one that it's kind of a booster. The first one's a primer. The second one's a booster. And as you know, the second one's with anything um, is the one you're going to react to a little bit if you do any. Just like when you do penicillin or if you're allergic to peanut butter or any of these common allergens, you don't usually react the first time you eat it. You react the second time you eat it because the first one's just kind of setting you up. The second one's when you react to it. So, more people have gotten reactions on the second shot. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it does tell you in a way that it's working. So, you know, I mean, it, it does show that it's activating something. Um, I've had some weird, people tell me some weird things like the calves of their, both sides of their calves just got extremely sore the next day. And why it picks one part out to affect, I don't know. but. Um, so don't be scared of it. I mean, you're going to do fine, um, but don't hesitate uh, to take a little ibuprofen or Tylenol um, or take the day off and rest um, as your body kind of fights this little reaction that's going on inside your body. But uh, great question. I like that. All right. Well, it looks like most people do fine. Most people do fine with it. Off, so. On that second shot? Yeah, most people do. Some people get pretty symptomatic, but uh, hopefully you're in that most category. And um, and again, it, it may take a few weeks for you to get immunity from these shots too. They don't work overnight. Um, so anyway, All right. those are great questions. Great, yeah. great time. I'm enjoying this more and more. Seems yeah. like we're getting a lot of questions. People are really seems like watching this a lot. So thank yeah. you, Ben. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you, Dr. Rogers for, for hanging out with me, uh, every Tuesday. 
guys, thank you for, for being here, the, the people who are still with us, uh, to the people on the podcast. Thank you for, for hanging out with us. Uh, we are here every Tuesday uh, in the 5 o'clock hour, usually around 545. Uh, we're taking live questions. And if you want to submit your question uh, this week for uh, next Tuesday, go ahead and email those at info at performancemedicine.net. Um, I'm looking at that uh, all week, and I put them together for Dr. Rogers uh, tonight. Uh, so anyways, thank you guys so much. Dr. Rogers, thank you. Uh, really appreciate y'all, um, gosh, asking great questions and, and hanging out with us. Um, and as always, we're going to see you guys next week. Dr. Rogers, I'll see you next week. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode of the podcast. Uh, please share the podcast with your friends. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. Uh, we will see you guys next time.